these topics, man, we get them assigned to us, and uh, sometimes I've found it pretty funny which ones get assigned to me, and um, generally it's the ones that I struggle with the most that Family Vacation and CMU usually assigns me to, which, so I kind of always feel like it's confession time instead of teaching time, but this is the topic, resist, resist temptation. And this is a little bit different for me from the last class that I, or actually the keynote that I taught. Because in that one, the passage that we were assigned, it sort of gave you a success story. In Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, you saw the success story of the church reproducing. But the passage that they gave me for this one on resisting temptation was Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 8. And if any of you know what that is... They're not success stories. They're not people who actually resisted temptation. They're folks that gave in to temptation and there were some pretty drastic consequences. And so I want to just examine this briefly. Clicker needs to be plugged in for it to work. Did y'all know that? All right. So let's examine this. Listen up. I forgot this was first. Can we get the lights?
So temptation, <coughs> temptation is an interesting thing and it dates back all the way to the very beginning of time. Um, from the very jump, God says, you know, he, in six days He creates everything. He makes man and woman. He puts them in the Garden of Eden. Everything is good. He's walking with them in the cool of the day. He tells them, uh, you got all these trees. They're yours. Enjoy. Except that one. Stay away from that one, because if you eat of it, you'll die. And there's a little bit of element of that right here in the picture. Don't push the button. Temptation. Do you really want to spend the rest of your life wondering? You know, I think there was a part of Adam and Eve that thought about just that one I can't have. What's, I can't wonder for the rest of my life. We've got to try this. We've got to experience it. There's a little bit of that when Satan enters that picture as the serpent and he comes and he starts talking to the woman. He starts rationalizing with her. And it's kind of like he says, well, doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it look good for food? Right? And who relates to this cat? I mean, the temptation is there. It's right in front of our face. It's staring at us. It looks good. It smells good. It makes sense. So we start playing with it. I'm more like this cat, though. I'm like all in it. You know, I'm ready to eat the fish. I probably got him in my mouth. I couldn't find that picture. But, <clears throat> but temptation is a very real thing. It's been real from the beginning of time. It's real in your lives today. And we need to be resisting. If you look at Acts chapter 5, though, it's not a success story. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I'm, I, we're not going to read through the story. You can do that on your own time because I want to pour as much practical stuff into this class as possible. Practical ways that you can take in and say, okay, I can use this to help me fight temptation. <clears throat> but they don't resist temptation. Neither Ananias nor Sapphira resist temptation. They both give in individually and collectively as a husband and wife. They lie. I love what the Scripture says. It says, man, you didn't just lie to man, but you lied to the Holy Spirit. It also says in there, it says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart to get you to this point? And then another thing, at the very end of the story, because they held back, a portion of the money instead of laying all the money at the apostles' feet. And they lie to man and to the Holy Spirit. Satan enters them. They do that. The result is they both die. First the husband, then the wife. Both drop dead. Then Simon the sorcerer. That's the story in Acts chapter 8. Another not-so-good success story of resisting temptation. He doesn't. He gives in. He, he actually becomes a Christian in Acts chapter 8. He believes and he's baptized. But then they send for the apostles. The apostles show up and they lay their hands on people and they receive these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Simon says, 
man, I'm a sorcerer, you know, and I've kind of made my living at doing magic. But man, I can't do that. I'd really like to be able to do that. And so he tries to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit that these apostles have, the ability to lay hands on people and give them these gifts. Simon wants the same ability. He wants the gift of the Holy Spirit and he wants to buy it with money. And then the thing that stands out to me about this passage, it says toward the end, it says, May your money perish with you, Simon, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. So as I looked at both of those stories, they both end with like either a death threat or actual death, right? They both include Satan. They both include the Holy Spirit. And they all have something to do with us. And as you think about temptation, 100% of the time there are three key players. God, the Holy Spirit, Satan, and us. And I want to look at those three and try to be as practical as I can to help us be better at resisting temptation. The first one is our enemy, the hostile, Satan himself. You know, in John chapter 10, verse 10, it says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says... I have come that they may have life in my name. And some of the translations say, I, I came to give them abundant life. In Ephesians chapter 6, turn over there if you can. In verses 10 through 18, listen to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's what? Schemes. The one who came to steal, kill, and destroy every good thing in your life, in fact, your very life itself, he has schemes. And you have to take your stand against them. Verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Right? Don't leave off any piece of what we're about to read. Don't leave off the helmet. Don't leave off your boots. Don't leave off your belt. Your pants are going to fall down. You're going to look ridiculous. Right? And so many times we go to battle with this devil who has been planning and plotting and he's got schemes and we go to battle with half of our armor. Or none. How many times do you wake up to start your day and you don't even pray? You don't prep your mind for battle. Do you think battle's not going to happen that day? That's dumb. The devil does not take vacations. Satan does not take time off. He is working overtime. And too many of us are either on vacation or working part-time. Or not working at all. We're asleep. Don't leave off anything. Put on the full armor of God. Verse 13. So that when the day of evil comes, and guess what? That's every day you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. We're in this together, right? God has given us some amazing tools and some amazing equipment, but we have to put it on. We have an enemy. He's very real. I say this to our group all the time. We have brand new visitors that come in to one of our gatherings. And I'll go sit down next to one of them. And I'll say, guys, what would happen if I walked in to you tonight and I just sat down next to you? Can I sit down next to you? I sit down next to you, man. And I come over and I put my hand on your shoulder and I lean over and I say, hey, you know somebody's going to try to kill you tonight. And he he gives me this goofy look, you know, and he's like, (laughs) tries to laugh it off. And but then I look deeper into his eyes and I say, No, man, I am I am serious. Now he's getting a little creeped out. Right? But then I say, No, man, I am not playing. I mean, he is out to get you. He's like the most dangerous guy ever. The word on the street is he's out to get you tonight. How would you feel? You'd be uneasy, right? It'd be kind of like going to a horror movie and afterwards, how you look in the back seat of your car just to make sure no one's there. How you go into your house after a horror movie. Who does this? You go into your house and you're just kind of like, you got to check all the closets before you lay down in the bed. You lock the door to your bedroom even though nobody else is in the house and the house is locked. I mean, you do all kinds of crazy stuff. <clears throat> But guys, some of that's paranoia. That's just in your mind. But Satan is not just in in our minds. He's real. And he wants to kill you. He is our enemy. And he wants nothing good for you. The Greek word, um, satanos, is what is typically translated uh, Satan in our Bibles. It's used in the New Testament... It's a word of Hebrew origin. It it means the accuser or the adversary, your opponent, or even the prosecution. Someone who's trying to accuse you and make you guilty. That's what Satan means. In the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew word Satan is often translated into the Greek word diabolos. Who plays uh, diabolos? What is that game? Diablo. There you go. Who plays that? All right. So, which most commonly is translated into English as devil. Diabolos means the accuser as well. But it adds this definition. Slanderer, backbiter, enemy, and separator. This gives you the mind of Satan. It's built into his name, right? In in the way that he's described in the Scripture, there's so much to it that we learn just from who he is and what he's called by God. This is how he's going to attack. We need to know how he's going to attack. We got some pictures of them. Another exercise I do with some of our group is I'll, I'll hand out pieces of paper. 
You can do this in your campus ministry. It's an awesome lesson. Hand out pieces of paper and have the whole room draw Satan and make it a contest. Whoever you know has the best Satan wins something. They draw Satan out. We've got like a on one of our walls. We've got that that uh, chalkboard paint that we painted the wall with. One night I had them just go up and who's got the best Satan? They put it up on the wall. Man, we've got some pretty impressive Satans over the years. Some pretty weird ones. This is a pretty good one. That guy's pretty creepy. That one is really cool. I mean, like his arm becomes snakes or something. I don't know. I like that one because he's just like plotting over the whole world. Look at his teeth, man. I mean, who wants to meet this guy in a dark alley? You don't, right? You freak all the way out. So what do we look for in Satan? Is that what we look for? We know better, right? We know that's not really what he looks like. So what does he look like? It's not this little guy. You know, Mel Gibson didn't have it quite right. Right? That's from the Passion of the Christ. That's Satan's character in the Passion of the Christ. And it's not this weird stuff. You know, this is not what temptation looks like, is it? Opening a door to a pit of fire and saying, come on. Oh, okay. Whee! You know, that's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. But he opens the door for you for sure. He doesn't look anything like this crazy guy. But he opens the door for you. Offers to help you in. But he's not offering a pit of fire. He's offering something else. The Scripture says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is Halloween, 365 days of the year for Satan, but he's not dressing up like a goblin or a demon or something scary. He's dressing up like an angel of light. The word angel, very often in the Scripture, means messenger. It's not always some angelic being that's like super powerful, stronger than humans. That's sometimes. But other times it's just a messenger. And in this case, I believe that in the context, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about these false apostles. People who are pretending to be apostles. And he says, you know what? They're servants. They're servants of Satan. No wonder they're acting like that because that's what he does. He masquerades as a messenger or an angel of light. So guys, when you, when you uh, encounter Satan, he's going to look good. You're going to be drawn to him. Not like those ugly pictures where like, oh, let me get out of the dodge, you know. He's going to look innocent, harmless, but he's anything but innocent or harmless. In 1 Peter 5, this is my favorite description of Satan. Peter says this in 1, Corinthians 5, uh, 1 Peter 5, verses 8-9. through 9, He says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
Now, if, I, if a lion entered the room right now, what happens? Who's going to go play with him? We got, we got one dude. He's either crazy or extremely brave. Right? Crazy. We'll go with crazy. Okay. So, and, and he'll probably only be crazy for a little while till the lion eats him. But if a lion enters the room, man, we're, we're like cockroaches. When the light comes on, we're gone. We're getting out of Dodge. I don't even want to be in this hotel anymore. I'm not going to go down to the next room. I'm going to get in my car or my van and I'm going to go back to Huntsville. You know, I'm going to get as far away as possible. But see, the problem is we treat Satan and we treat sin and temptation as if it's something that we want to just kind of play with a little bit. We want to get as close to it as possible without, you know, crossing the line. Maybe we'll cross it for a little while and then we come back. But we want to play with it. Like it's not serious. Like he's not a lion that wants to eat us. You know, the thing is, you know when a lion is roaring? When he's conquered and he's about to eat. So it's not like he's like, Roar, I'm going to scare you away and then I'll try to eat you. No. He's going to pounce on you. You're dead, and then he roars in celebration because he's about to eat. You know, I don't know about y'all, I'm a very visual guy, but it helps me to picture Satan in these ways, in the reality that the Scriptures presents him. It helps me. I don't want to be eaten by a lion. I don't want Satan to roar in victory. Does that not bother anybody or tick anybody else off other than me? I can't stand that image. When I think about students that are in sin or getting caught up in stuff that they shouldn't be doing or treating each other like they shouldn't be doing because Satan's got his claws in them, it just irks me. Because I can, I can sort of peel back what I can see with my physical eyes and I can sort of peel back and I see the demons like craftiness and I see the lion roaring and I see all of that and it helps me to say no, I don't want to be any part of that. I want God to be smiling. I want God to be dancing. Look at my boy. Woo! Look at him resist. You know, I want God, I, I don't know about y'all, but it helps me to picture that. Like when you're getting ready to turn on that pornography, I mean, can you picture God's face like crying? Can you see Jesus hanging on the cross? And I died so you don't have to do that stuff. And then do you, do you, on the other side of it, do you see Satan going, ha ha, yes! I mean, does that not, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that helps me. When I get in the moment, I don't want the lion roaring. I want God smiling. It helps me. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, there's a little phrase that pops up here. It says, in order that Satan might not outwit us. I can't stand being outwitted, okay? So this passage motivates me. Who likes to be outsmarted? Exactly. Made to look stupid? Exactly. Nobody. But it says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not 
unaware of his schemes. And we're not, guys. You know, it's, it's amazing. I'm a big college football fan. I live in Alabama. It's a rule. You have to. You know, you have to be a college football fan. You've got to pick sides, too, either Alabama or Auburn. I picked the right one. Alabama, roll tight. <clears throat> All right. But something that all football teams do, well, I think all of them do. If they don't, they should, right? But they all look at game film. This is like a picture of a football team with their coach up there, and they're showing game film. They're highlighting their pause, and they're saying, look at what you did. You missed this block. You're supposed to pull out this way. You went this way. You missed your assignment. They're pointing it out. They're also pointing out, like, weaknesses in their opponent, and they're saying, look, man, they're soft right here. We can attack that. We could, you know, manipulate that, take advantage. They have game film, and they plan, and they strategize. They want to know their opponent. And guys, we need to be looking at game film on Satan. The cool thing is God gives it to us in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. I want to read this. This is our game film. This is right after Jesus gets baptized. Now check this out. Who's been baptized in the last year? Raise your hand. This is going to apply to you in a special way. Because immediately after Jesus is baptized, this happens. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days, anybody ever fasted for 40 days? Y'all know what fasting is, right? It's not, not eating. For 40 days? Never. I'm not sure that's ever going to happen for me unless somehow that's forced upon me. I might die on day 20 or so, though. I, I don't know. I like eating. Amen, Kyle? All right. So, <clears throat> But he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Imagine that. That's like... A, one of those phrases you could have left out, we had it figured out. Yeah, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, can you hear how he's saying it? If you're really the Son of God, that's how I would have said it. If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Ooh, he just stuck it to Satan. I love it. Then he breaks out the Word of God and he puts it in Satan's face and he's like, no, no, you're not going to win this one. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, he'll command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came 
and attended to him. Now this is a powerful story, but it's game film. We get to see Jesus versus Satan right there, head to head. We get several attacks. We get several responses. This is beautiful. What's the longest you've been without food? Two days. Man. Yeah, how, how long? Does anybody have anything impressive? Three? That's not impressive. We're talking four, three weeks. Okay, we're getting there. It's still not 40 days. Alright? Jesus is hungry. He's not hungry. He's hungry. Right? 40 days without food. Would you feel ready to do battle with a roaring lion? You see, that's the thing about Satan. If you know anything about nature, you watch the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet or whatever, when they show the lions hunting, who do they always go after? The little one that's kind of a little limp, you know? Like, hey guys, wait up! <laughs> you know? And he gets... It's terrible. I can't even let my kids watch it without having you know, a long discussion. But, yeah, it's like... He always goes for the weak one. And Satan attacked when Jesus was at his physically weakest point. What he didn't realize is that because of the fasting, I believe Jesus was fasting to prepare for battle so his mind would be focused, he would be ready. It's not about being physically ready, it's about being ready spiritually with your mind sober and alert, focused. What Satan didn't realize is he was more spiritually strong because he had prepared for battle through the fasting process. I'm going to rush through some of this. I didn't mean to have a slide for everything. Um, Satan's overall approach. It's not rocket science. He says, I'm going to tempt. I'm going to dangle in front and make you want it. Right, if I had a, I saw a guy, uh, it may have been Francis Chan, he had, a, he had a fishing pole. And he put a dollar bill on the, uh, no, I'm sorry, not a dollar bill, he put a gummy worm on the end of it. And he like dangled it in front of the congregation. Like one little kid's like, Mom, can I have that? You know, but uh, nobody reached for it. But then he took out a hundred dollar bill, put it on the hook, and dangled it. And start, people started moving around in their seats. Right? Like some of y'all who are afraid I burned that money. Like, no! 300 bucks? Up in smoke? But that's what he does. He dangles. That's his job. He's tempting. That's all he's doing is tempting. That's the only power he really has. Now, the Scripture actually seems to indicate, as I was researching this and studying this, it seems to indicate Satan's got some power. But his primary thing is he tempts. Now, there had been periods of time where the Scripture describes where God allowed Satan to like do some physical things to people. Like there's a woman who's bent over in the Scripture and, and Jesus comes and He straightens her up. It says that, that, that Satan was involved in, in why she was bent over. Right? And, and of course we know Job. He had all those sores put on his body. God allowed for that to happen. Satan was involved in that process. We know that God allows Satan to do some things. He might put you through a physical trial. He might put you through a dangle in front of you. Don't you want this that you shouldn't have or don't need? 
But this is his primary function. He's the tempter. How does he tempt Jesus? If you look, you got your Bibles open, look at verse 3. He calls Jesus' identity into question. That's one thing he does. If you're the Son of God. And guys, I want you to think about, as you think about how does he tempt Jesus, I want you to think about how does he tempt you and see if it's not paralleled. Does he not call your identity into question? Does he not have a lot of our culture and a lot of our world in an identity crisis? That's what he's been doing from the very jump, man. Ain't nothing changed. You know why he didn't change anything? Because it still works. It hasn't stopped working on humans. So he keeps doing it. And we keep not learning. We keep not watching the game film and learning. And being alert and ready. But he calls Jesus' identity into question. He tries to work on ego and pride. He doesn't do that to us, does he? Of course he does. He gets us to think that we're more than we really are. Like we, we think more highly of ourselves than we should. And so don't let somebody say something sideways to us. Right? Now who do you think you're talking to? Well, just a little human, you know. But we think we're something. Ego and pride he attacks. He used something that makes sense. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Man, you ain't ate in 40 days. And everything that he tempts you with, guys, is not going to be some outlandish thing that doesn't make any sense. Most of the time it's going to make sense. Look at, does sex make sense? Yeah, I mean, the round goes in, you know, it, 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 it fits. It makes sense. Right? It feels good. There's a natural desire there. And when I, I mean, everything makes sense. Unless we pervert it, then stuff don't start making sense. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that man and man don't go together. I mean, just the very nature of things tells us that. We don't have to have a Bible degree to figure that out. But it makes sense. He's going to tempt us with things that make sense. He calls our identity in question. He tries to work our ego and pride. He uses something that makes sense. Sex, alcohol, education, money, religion. He uses all of those things. They all make sense. But he takes them and he uses them for himself and his plan and his schemes. In verse 5 and 6, we see a new tactic. He twists the Scripture to justify his action. You see, Jesus breaks out the Scripture, but then Satan says, okay, we're going to open the Word? I'll open the Word too. But I'm going to twist it to get the result that I want. Same thing he did in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you'd die if you ate from that tree? He starts twisting things. And guys, we got a lot of people twisting Scripture to justify behavior. You can find a church that will accept any behavior you would like to participate in. You can. You want to be able to drink? You want to be able to have beer and Bible study? They got a campus ministry in Georgia for that. I'm not going to call the name. There's a bunch of colleges in Georgia. It's not Georgia University. Okay, don't misunderstand me. There's a, there's a campus ministry in Georgia, a really sizable one, that has beer and Bible study. And some of their Bible study leaders were arrested for streaking across the campus drunk. 
The campus minister goes, bails them out of jail, puts them right back in leadership. You can find a church that you can do whatever you want in. It doesn't matter what it is. You can twist Scripture to justify your actions, but then you're in bad company. That's what Satan does. In 1 Timothy 2, Adam, would you bring me some water, please? In 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 3, I don't know how that happened. Anyway, we're going to read in reverse. Are you all ready? No. All right, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Thank you. You're a gentleman and a scholar, only to be exceeded by your good looks and charm. All right. All right. Thank you. Look, this was projected. We were told this is going to happen, and now we're here. People gather around themselves, people to say whatever they want to hear. And guys, let me say this. If you're going to be spiritual people that resist temptation... (laughs) Thank you, Adam. If you're going to be spiritual people that resist temptation and you succeed in it, You're going to have to do the opposite of this. You're going to have to put people in your life that are willing to get in your face and tell you things you don't want to hear. Those are the real friends. Not the ones that say, oh, everybody's got problems. You know, it's okay. Nobody's perfect. Man, that's all a bunch of garbage that doesn't do any good in helping us resist temptation. You need somebody to say, yeah, none of us are perfect, but hey, let's help each other be perfect. Man, that's not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay to shack up and live together with somebody that you're not married to. It's not okay to have sex outside of marriage. It's not okay to look at pornography. It's not harmless. It's it's actually hurting lots of people. You just don't realize it. You're destroying your future marriage and all kinds of things. Right? Just gossip. It's so destructive. It'll tear a ministry apart. It'll render them helpless and paralyzed. They won't grow. You need people to get in your face and say it's not okay. We love sinners. We hate sin. We love sinners, but if you love sinners, you have to be willing to get in their face, otherwise you can't say you love them. If you can't tell them the truth with the risk of making them angry, with the risk of losing a relationship, if you can't tell them the truth, then you are not loving How does he tempt Jesus in verses 8 and 9? He tries to put him in awe. I like this one. He also offers empty promises. He does all of that to us as well. How does he put us in awe? Look at the list of things that that captivates us. Am I right? We are so enamored by these things. Education. Technology. We can't get our nose out of a phone long enough to pay attention to what God has to say in our lives. You know? We've got to have the next best thing, the next fastest process, or the next trend. 
Like, what's trending on Facebook? What's trending on YouTube? We gotta, it's like, yeah, some of that stuff's entertaining, but here's the problem with entertainment. The word entertainment means to hold one's attention. That's what it means, to hold someone's attention. The problem is the amount of time we spend. It's not that entertainment is wrong, but the amount of time we are focused on one thing while God's saying, hey, I got something to say too. This stuff has us in awe, man. We're like, our, our jaws are dropped and we're just, ah. Oh. College football. That's me. Ah. Oh. No, not right now. Not right now. You want to study the Bible? You want to be baptized? No, the, the game's on. What? Popularity, relationships, man. When somebody gets the goo goo eyes for the opposite sex, they are in awe and useless. <laughs> I mean, seriously, useless. It's pitiful. And you know what? If you don't fix that, it's going to lead to a marriage that's pretty useless too and it won't last. If it's going to be about y'all being goo-goo with each other and that's what life is about, that's going to wear off eventually. And you're gone. You've got to have some purpose, man, that you're moving together toward. You've got to be equally yoked with somebody. Not unequal. Now, yoke's the thing that you put around two neck of an oxen so that you can plow a field. And it says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't get some little squirrely ox over here that's sick and then put him with a strong one. You're going to go in circles, you know? You're not going to plow anything. It ain't going to work. But he tries to put us in awe with all of these things and get us focused on all the wrong things. But Jesus, every time, responds consistently with Scripture. And here's the list of the Scriptures, you want to write them down, that He responded with. Deuteronomy 8.3, Psalm 91.11-12, Deuteronomy 6.16, and Deuteronomy 6.13. Those are Jesus' response to the devil. And guys, He didn't have His Bible in His back pocket. Where did He have His Bible? In His mind and written on His heart. The only way you accomplish that is to be in it and thinking about it and meditating on it and working at it. That's a spiritual discipline to be committed to the Word of God so that you can ingrain it in you, so that it's natural, that it comes out. People ask me all the time, how long did it take you to put that lesson together? Well, about as long as it took me just to sort of organize my thoughts and put it in a PowerPoint because it's kind of already here. It takes a lifetime to put together a sermon. You have to... Be in it. It has to be who you are and what you're about. And that's, that's why Jesus was able to just boom, boom, boom. Respond with God's Word. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. See, we've been focused on the devil. And we need to be focused on the devil. We need to understand our enemy. But we, we're going to start transitioning a little bit to talk more about us. And then we're going to finish by talking about the Holy Spirit as the player in this resisting temptation thing. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. James 4, 7. Here's the problem. Resist the devil. 
Man, we need, I needed a good illustration. I thought about having two guys come up here and like, like MMA, you know, grapple on the floor or something, you know, and just see. You're going to let him beat you? Come on and just watch him scrap. You can picture it. We're not going to do it, all right? But just picture it. They're up here and they're struggling. They are resisting each other. And that is often not the picture of resistance that we have when we face the devil. We're not resisting. We might feel a little guilty about it, but I'm just participating, you know. I'll just... Man, fight! Fight! And he'll flee. He doesn't want to fight. He wants an easy job. He'll move on from the strong for a period. Because look at this. He moved on from Jesus, right? But look at this. Luke's account of that temptation story in Matthew chapter 4, Luke's account of it ends this way. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So if you resist him, he's going to go away. He don't want to fight. But he's going to step back and just wait. Okay, he's weak again. Let me go. When you fight, he'll step back. And he'll wait until you're weak again. And then he'll attack. This is a never-ending battle. You can never let your guard down if you're going to be successful in resisting the devil. I got 11 creatures that are the deadliest in the world. Oh, wait, how'd that get in there? Um, that's, uh, that, that was my dog. It's not my dog anymore. I gave her away, but uh, yeah, I'm not a dog person. It didn't really work out. We had a love-hate relationship. I hated her. She loved me. Um, all right, the real ones. All right, number 11, poison dart frog. Most deadly frog on the planet, very deadly, the 11th most deadly animal on the planet. Who thinks they know number 10? Give me a guess. What? The Cape Buffalo. Who got it right? <laughs> you did? Oh, awesome. <laughs> all right. Number nine. We'll just put it all bears, right? We know the polar and the grizzly. You could argue which one would win. I don't know. Right? It depends on if you're in the snow or if you're in the grass, I guess. Maybe that would be an advantage. All right. Polar grizzly or black bears. Most dangerous. Ninth most dangerous animal. Then you got the hippo. A lot of people don't know that. They think it's like cozy little hippo, you know? Man, they capsize boats in Africa all the time and they, they kill people. They're responsible for the deaths of a lot of humans. The African elephant, man, especially in a herd. And they start a stampede, you better get out of the way. They're very, very dangerous and they'll gore you with their tusks. Roll time. Sorry. <laughs> Alright, um... The joke's overdone. I'll, I'll stop. Alright. Um... Okay. Saltwater crocodile. Much more dangerous than the alligator, right? The alligator's kind of a passive little dude. Mess with him, he'll bite you, but this guy will come after you. Saltwater croc. The African lion makes number five on the list. The female usually does all the hunting. Watch out for her, man. Dangerous. The great white shark. You can dive with sharks, you know. You can go like pay people to dive with sharks. But not that one. You've got to be in a cage. They won't let you dive because he'll eat you. 
The Australian box jellyfish is number three. Don't get stung. Deadly. The Asian cobra. When I was in India, I actually got to play with one of these. And I played with it, like got close to it, was messing with it, you know. I got pictures of me like this far away from it. And, uh, you know, trying to do the little karate kid thing, you know. And um, only to realize they had removed the fang, so I was completely safe. I'm like, ah. Anyway, I still get bravery points because I didn't know that. Anyway, um, Asian cobra. And this is number one. Kills more people than any other creature on the planet every year. Every year. Because it, it has malaria, carries other diseases, passes it, and people die every year from mosquito bites. More than any other creature. Except, what do you think? Maybe what we do to each other. Genesis 4, verse 7. I'm going to connect those deadly creatures to a concept that we learn in this story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. You know the story. It's two brothers. It's the beginning. You know, Genesis means beginning. You can actually find the beginning of almost anything that you can think of in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The beginning of sibling rivalry happens here. The beginning of murder happens here in chapter 4. It says this, He's, God is speaking. He looks down. He sees Cain. Cain's upset, you know, because God liked my brother's offering better than he liked mine. So he's, he's got all kinds of emotions going. He's angry. And his face is kind of down. Okay, he's probably stomping around. And God says, Hey, Cain, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. We know the end of that story, right? Did he master it? No. Cain kills his brother Abel. All he was was angry. That was it. What's wrong with being a little angry? Right? Because if you don't get a handle on it, it could turn into murder. Or something terrible. See, can you get that? I love that picture, man. It's like at your door. Sin is at your door. It, it wants you. The word here for desire means it runs after you. It will be willing to run after you. Just crack the door open a little bit and it's all over you. It desires you. But you must master it. See, we're transitioning from saying the devil made me do it. Right, we learned about the enemy, and you need to know about the enemy. You need to know his tactics and how to fight him. You need to know all about him. But we don't say, he made me do it. We say, he's at my door, desires me, but I have got to do something. I have to master it. Here's another thing we don't say. Not only do we say the devil... Uh, made me do it. We don't say that. We also don't say that God made me do it. James 1, 13 through 15 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Stop there for a second. Have you heard the latest thing in our culture to say, God made me this way? Why is He going to punish me 
for doing something, acting on the way that He made me. What is that? That's blaming God. If God calls something sin, and we say, well, I'm only doing that because you made me this way, I am saying that God is the problem. God isn't the problem. No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when? When? His own evil desire. By His own evil desire, He is dragged away and enticed. Whose fault is it? Not God's. Not the devil's. It's mine. It's because of my evil desire that I get dragged away and enticed. Satan plays a role in it. He dangles, he accuses, he does all his things that Satan does. But ultimately, it comes to my desire. What I want. And then I get dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it was like a birth process, right? After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. It's a process. You know, an alcoholic doesn't just wake up one day and say, how'd I get here? I mean, if he does, you know, he might say that, how'd I get here? But it started a long time ago. He didn't just wake up one day and suddenly he was a drunk and addicted. It started with one drink. Just socially, man, I don't even like it. It tastes nasty. But man, all my friends do it, so I'll try it again. And eventually I start liking it, and now I'm doing it a lot, and man, I don't even have fun anymore without it. And next thing you know, I wake up somewhere, and I don't even know how I got there. Drunkenness, man. And now I'm addicted. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Every sin like that is a process. It's a birth process. You know, if you think back to those dangerous animals, I'm trying to get us to think and say, okay, I'm going to take this sin thing seriously. I'm going to take temptation more seriously. Man, it could kill me. It gets worse. I already went over this. All right, this is where I want to get to. If you were bitten by an Asian cobra, what would you do? It just bit you. What are you going to do? You're going to answer my question right now? No. You're going to get up out of your seat, holler, get somebody's attention, help, probably cry a little bit, even if you're a grown man. You know. And you're going to go get help. You're going to go to the ER. You're going to go to the emergency room. You're going to find somebody that can help you. You would be serious. It would suddenly shift your whole day into serious mode. You might have been laughing, ha-ha, telling a joke, doing something. Bit, whoop, suddenly... Everything changes. What about this though? See, that's a physical snake bite that gets us all alarmed. But what about our spiritual lives? When you're tempted to gossip or complain, what are you going to do? Are you that alarmed? Are you that concerned? How serious are you going to be about that? See, about a cobra bite, we're just all up in arms. We've got to fix it. But man, if I hear someone gossiping about somebody else, I'm not very quick to say, Whoa, snake! Oh, whoa, get away! That's gossip. Eh, eh, eh. Don't say another word. I don't want to hear it. Seriously. 
we got to get more serious about it. If you hear it coming out of your mouth or somebody else's, nip it in the bud because it is dangerous and it will lead to sin, which will give birth eventually to death. I don't know what it will kill. It could kill any number of things. It could kill passion in a church. It could kill a person, really. Kill their spirit. Or make them even get so low because they've been gossiped about. Maybe they take their own physical life. There's all kinds of death that can come from it. Maybe even death that you're not aware of. But it's dangerous and we should be nipping it in the bud. Taking gossip and things like it as serious as we take a snake bite. Tempted to look at porn. Do you take that computer screen? What was that movie um, with Kirk Cameron? Uh, uh, Fireproof, yeah. So fireproof, and there's a scene in the movie where he's tempted to watch porn. A little pop-up comes up and he's like, oh. He's like the kid with the marshmallow. You know, he's like, oh, I don't know. He eventually just resolves. You you can see it come over him. He resolves. No, I'm not going to do it. And he grabs his computer screen. He throws it and he starts bashing it with a baseball bat. (coughs) How serious do we take our sin? There's all kinds of things. I, I got a bunch of these. Temper is rising. You're going to become Cain and kill your brother, or are you going to get it under control? You're going to take it serious like a snake bite? We've got to stop blaming the devil and take temptation serious and say that's my responsibility to control my desires. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We covered that. But we've got to remember it, folks. E, we have to resist. The last thing, I think this is the last thing I want to read to you. It's a little lengthy, but listen, listen carefully. This is an amazing passage of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 7. See if you can relate. It says this, My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Right? Like Jesus. He had them in him. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. And to insight, say, you're my relative. They'll keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near that woman's house, near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She's unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. With a brazen face, she said, Today I fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you, and I found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband, he's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with the money and will not be home till full moon. 
With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer in the headlights. And that's what I wanted to say, but it says, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it'll cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Don't let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. Man, that's how it works. There's wisdom in the Proverbs. Man, meditate. If you're going to meditate on something this weekend in regards to resisting temptation, meditate on Proverbs chapter 7. Just think about what, what it says there, man. And then Psalm 119, 9 through 16 says some similar things. I'll read the highlighted portions here. It says, By living according to your word, that's how a young man keeps his way pure. By living according to your word. And then he says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I will not neglect your word. His word, man, is key. It was key for Jesus in resisting the devil. It's key for us in resisting the devil. I want to tell you a story about the ring-tailed monkey. This little dude is fast. He's agile. He can jump, swing, do all this stuff. He's hard to catch. But we like to have them in our American zoos. They go over to Africa and they hunt these guys down, but they're very hard to catch. So what they discovered is that the native folks around there called the Zulus actually have perfected a way of catching these guys. You know how they do it? They have these melons that these, these guys just love. They've got this particular type of melon that's got seeds down inside of it. So the Zulu people, they will cut a little hole just big enough that the monkey's hand can fit down inside it. All right, But once it gets inside and it grabs the seeds that it wants... Now when it clenches those, its fist is too big to get back out of the melon. And it will stay there fighting to get those seeds until the Zulus come, put them in a cage, and go home. They will not let go of the seeds to slide their hand out. Does that sound like a monkey? Does that sound like humans? It definitely sounds like a monkey because they do that. Okay. <laughs> but guys, I would say it absolutely sounds like us. We're not willing to let go of something even though it's going to get us trapped, even though it's going to get us killed or imprisoned in a zoo. No, you know, but we do the same thing as an animal is my point. And we're not animals. We're the one part of God's creation that has His image, that we're His image bearers. And He gave us a, something special that the animals don't have. Frog sitting in a pot of water. If you put a frog in boiling water, it will immediately jump out and make a noise. But if you set him in room temperature water and slowly increase the heat, he will boil to death. Frogs do that. But you know who else does that? 
We do. We get in that sin, that temptation, we put ourselves there, we play around with it. We think, oh, a little bit's okay, whatever. But then slowly but surely, the devil keeps adding, keeps adding, keeps adding. I had another illustration. I chose not to do it, but I could get two volunteers to come up here and, and put clothespins on their face one by one. Have like a partner here and a partner here. Whoever does the most clothespins in a minute wins. All right, so they put them all on, they put them all on, and then we ask them, how are you feeling? And then we count them. But they always say, man, it's kind of uncomfortable. But imagine if you took all the clothespins, not one by one, but just stuck them on all at the same time. The guys would wince back, right? No, that would hurt. Same way with the frog, man. But we let, we let Satan attack us. Here's a little sin. Let me back up. Let him get used to that one. All right, here we go. Put another one on. Before you know it, we're overcome with it. Before you know it, we're boiling to death. This is how Satan attacks. Animals buy into this. This is right here. It's a knife covered in blood. This is how they say, I don't know if it's true or not, okay, but the story is, has been around for a while, but they say that in olden times that Eskimos would hunt for wolves this way. They would dip the knife in blood and then they would freeze it. And then they would re-dip it in blood and they would freeze it, re-dip it in blood and freeze it till they had a blood sickle stick it down into the ground, attach it to a rope, and leave. And when they come back, they would have a dead wolf. Because what would happen is the wolf would smell it. He would discover the blood sickle. He'd begin to lick it. Ooh, that's good. And the more he licked it, the more it started to melt in the warmth of his mouth. And by the way, his tongue starts getting numb. So when he actually finally gets to the blade and it cuts him, his tongue is so numb he doesn't know he's cut. But all he, all he detects is his own blood. And it's warm. Mixed with the other blood from the sickle. And so he gets ferocious with it. Man, he just wants more and more and more. And he's lapping it up, lapping it up until he bleeds out. And he dies. This is how animals operate. This is how we trick animals into being caught. And how we trick animals into death. But we're so much more than animals, or are we? Second Peter says this, those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority, well, they're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. That's Scripture, that's God. He says we're no better than animals sometimes. We don't have any reasoning. Remember the goo-goo eyes? There's no reasoning in that. It's just all suddenly emotion and feeling detached from a brain, detached from conviction. We're better than animals, folks. And I don't know about you, but when I think about giving in to temptation and I think of myself as a dumb old animal, that ticks me off too. That motivates me to want to resist because I want to be better than an animal. I don't want someone to have control over me so if they come up and do something awful or say something sideways, I don't want them to have the control that it makes me say something. That's like poking a dog with a stick and you know. I'm more than that. You're more than that. God made you more than that. The last part here. I hope I've got time to finish this. I'm going to anyway. All right, so 
Romans chapter 8, this is where the Spirit comes in. We've talked about the devil, his responsibility and all this. We talked about us. Don't blame the devil. Don't blame God. Take responsibility. Don't be like an animal. Make some choices. Be disciplined. Take your spiritual lives as serious as you do your physical lives. But now the Spirit enters the picture. He says, in the same way, Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We have a helper. But if you're not a Christian... That spirit component is missing. So your battle is not going to get any better. Without the Spirit of God, it's not going to get any better. With the Spirit of God, the temptation will still be there. The life circumstances will still be there. But the Spirit will be there to help you through it. Man, if you haven't become a Christian, you need to talk to somebody. You need to become a Christian so that the Spirit of God can step up to battle with you. It's your only chance. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Anybody in here not know how to dance? Yeah. What if, a, what if a girl or a guy asked you to dance and you had no clue how to dance? She wanted to do the cha-cha. And you're like, Alright. <laughs> Alright. So you grab her hands and you just start doing a little something, you know? But you're going to step all over. It's not going to work out. You're going to look goofy. And that's the way we are when we don't keep in step with the Spirit. We're going to embarrass ourselves. We're going to hurt ourselves. It's not going to work out. We have to work to take the Spirit's lead and let Him lead us in a beautiful dance called life. Keep in step with His Spirit. And that's what we got for today. Let me pray for you. And I'm pretty sure we're out of time. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this group. I pray that uh, in spite of me, uh, that your word will be elevated in our minds and hearts this morning, that people will take away something, God, to help them better resist the schemes of the devil, their own evil desires within them. Father, I pray that we can resist temptation, that we can overcome sin in our own lives and then look out for ways to help our brothers and sisters and the world that desperately needs to know you. Help every one of us, God, resist temptation and live in a glorifying way where, the, where, where Satan is disappointed and he's not roaring in, in triumph, but you are smiling and dancing and singing in joy over us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.